Hello, everyone, and welcome to Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. My name is David Hudson. I'm here along with my friend Chris Craig, and this is the first of what we hope to be many future podcasts. Chris and I are both big music fans, and this podcast is going to be about music as we see it, not how other people see it. Uh, so we'll cover um, our favorite bands and uh, genres of music, everything from Wilco to Megadeth to Johnny Cash to the New York Dolls to Motley Crue. I don't know about you, Chris. I think that hits all genres of good music. I think so. I mean, we definitely, I mean, we can go even further, man. I can talk about Otis Redding if you want to someday. Right. I mean, we can, there's no limits on this. Cool. Uh, you'll soon learn that Chris is the most knowledgeable uh, person I know when it comes to music. Uh, he's like a world book encyclopedia for you kids that don't know what an encyclopedia is. It's a book that has information about everything. But you know, honey, I don't mean to interrupt. It's kind of like we were talking about. Just We, we had lunch just a few minutes ago. We were talking about it's just this, this. I guess you can call it a skill if you want to say that, this memory and I, this knowledge I have of music. But it's like, man, why couldn't have I had something that I could make money off of, you know? Right. But, but hey, I'll, I'll take it. It's kind of cool. I enjoy it. It's like I said, the fact that I know that Troy Lachetta is the drummer for Tesla is never going to make me a dime. <laughs> anyway, uh, Chris, I, I've known, known you for about probably close to 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, we've been to numerous concerts together, um, talk on the phone uh, frequently about music. Um, for the people that don't know, you just give a brief history of kind of your music obsession, how it started. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question, and I'm, I'm not real sure. You know, nobody in my, I mean, I, people, my family members enjoy music, um, but they've never been quite to the level I have where I've kind of been a little bit obsessed by it. Um, it just, I guess it kind of grabbed me early on as a kid. I, uh, I can think Elvis hit me first, you know, being a kid from Memphis, I, I, and I still had this, had this enormous Elvis poster on my wall. Um, you know, fascination with Elvis led then led to Billy Idol, which, you know, coincidentally, uh, Elvis, or, yeah, Elvis was a huge influence on Billy Idol. Um, then came me getting into guitar and the hair bands, and, yeah, then I started getting diverse and couldn't get my hands on a dip enough different varieties of music. Um, so I don't know, it's just kind of a lifelong thing and I can never get enough music. I'm the same way. The first real memory I have is uh, I was about seven years old and uh, this was back in the time of boom boxes, if you remember that. The kid on the playground had the Footloose soundtrack. I asked my mom for the Footloose soundtrack and uh, listened to that and then I remember asking my mom to buy me Van Halen 1984 and the salesman at the music store told her it was not for an uh, eight-year-old boy. And so... Uh, what a jerk. I know, if I can find <laughs> that guy. Uh, really, what really got me was Prince Purple Rain, the album. Um, the song Purple Rain is my favorite song of all time. I think it's almost almost a perfect song. And uh, I'm like you, once that fire got lit, um, my dad had a friend that worked at a radio station and he would send us the actual records from the top 40 every week. So on like Wednesday, I would get the top 40 on, mm -hmm. on vinyl. And, um, you know, once you, once you light that fire, you're, you're going to go down a lot of paths. Um, same thing with you, hair metal kind of got me. And as you'll find when you listen to this podcast, Chris and I probably agree 70% on time of the time on things. Uh, the other 30%, I think is going to make for some interesting discussion. And, uh, I do hope that if you listen to this and we talk about a style of music or an artist that you don't particularly like or have heard of, at least give it a try. Um, it's the only way you can find out about new music. Um, Chris recently has turned me on to the Gaslight Anthem, and uh, I'm about four albums in, and I uh, can't get enough of them. So uh, if you hear something that you've never heard of, it doesn't cost anything to go online and get a sample of it and uh, see what you think. Um, so... I thought since it's our debut episode that um, the topic today should be our favorite debut albums. And as Chris and I talked beforehand, this isn't what um, this is what we think is our five favorite debut albums, not what Rolling Stone thinks or anyone else. And um, I think there are going to be some diverse albums here. I know Chris's are, are going to be quite diverse, and um, I'm going to throw to him. What we're going to do is he's going to say the name of his album, we're going to talk about it, and then we'll go back and forth between he and I until we're done. Yeah, and this is this is not a ranking. Um, I these Just because I start with one doesn't mean it's number five on my list. And I, honestly, I don't think I could rank them. 
And if I'm being perfectly honest, if you ask me to do this tomorrow, if we were doing this show tomorrow, I might have a different five. I I'm just, the same way. I change. Um, but this was the best I could do for this. So let's um, let's just get started with my with my first pick. I'm gonna go with um, let's just go and start with the with the Stone Roses. Okay. Um, I don't know how many people are familiar with this band, but uh, band out of Manchester. Um, just a they were out of Manchester, and they really kind of helped define what's now known as the Manchester. John, it's, it's called a man. It's actually called the Manchester Movement, and they were kind of a, at the forefront of that. They were, um, they kind of defined Brit pop, you know, which Brit pop, the the bands that kind of merged out of that, Suede, Oasis, Blur, and I know this. I know they were a big influence on a lot of those bands, but the album kind of has gone largely unnoticed, at least in the states. Uh, I know it had some success in in the U.S. or in the in the U.K. And with this album, it's, um, I don't know what it is. It just, there's something about it just grabs me. I, I think every song on it is great. Um, I think it kind of has a sound that's ahead of its time. And it's funny too, I picked it as a debut album, but yet they only recorded one other album. And, you know, whereas I give this one five stars, I'd probably give the second with a follow-up three. You know, just not very good. Um... But anyway, this album was released in 89. It was on Silvertone Records, recorded at, at Battery, Battery Studios in London. Um, you know, I, I've got a lot of stuff I can talk about this. I'm First, I'm just going to kind of, since I did at least state mine, I wanted to just give it to you, Huddy, if you have an opinion of it, if you've given it much time. Well, this is an album that you, you see mentioned a lot by uh, especially a lot of British musicians. Um, I think one way you could almost characterize it is it's, kind of like the exile on Main Street of the late 80s, early 90s in Britain. Um, it's a solid album all the way through. I, I, I knew that this was probably something you were going to pick, so I gave it a spin uh, driving up here today. And I'll tell you, one of the things that sticks out to me is the, the production on it. Um, the way the vocals seem to kind of float in and out with the, um, some of the guitar playing actually reminds me a little bit of Johnny Marr. Um, in it and it, it's an album that if, if you start reading about other artists they're going to point back to it and you're right it wasn't nearly as big in America but it was huge in England yeah and you know in, in recent years it started to get kind of its 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 credit in in the U.S. at least with by the critics I mean it's, it's got the critical claim you know because just in in I was, I was kind of looking up some stuff before we did this, and it, I saw in 2005, Spin Magazine, they ranked it number 78 out of the 100 greatest albums of the past 20 years. Rolling Stone has it listed 498 out of 500, the greatest albums of all time. And in 2006, Time Magazine named it one of the all-time 100 albums. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of getting its due now, but like I said, largely went unnoticed in the States. Um, it's, I don't know, Ian Brown, he, he's, he was the vocalist for the band, it's his lyrics are very arrogant to say the least. I mean, the the first the opening track is "I want to be adored," and um, I believe him when he says it. I mean, that's a and you watch a guy play. You if you ever watch him perform, he's a cocky, cocky guy. I can see why Oasis was influenced by. Him. I was about to say he wouldn't be the first cocky <laughs> musician from Manchester. Yeah, um, and you know, and I'm I'm holding in my hand right now the. Uh, the release they did, they put out the 20th anniversary in 2009. Like I said, album came out in 89. Um, I'm looking at the back of it right now, and there's, yeah, NME, which is, people aren't familiar. I mean, you probably are if you're listening to this show, but it's kind of like the Rolling Stone of the UK. They listed it as, right here, it's saying, it's continu continuously named as the greatest album of all time. That's by NME. I mean, that's, that's high praise there. But this, this reissue that I got you know, a few years when it came out, Highly, I mean, if you're a fan of this album, and you don't have it. Get the reissue. It's really cool. It's got it's got two discs. You know, the first one, just the original album. Second disc is Lost Demos. The demos are a lot of songs that are on the first, you know, the original album. There's demo versions, but then there's some other cool songs that really would have fit nicely into the album. I mean, if they had, a, there's only 12 cuts on it, but they could have easily gone about 15, and still had just a, a killer, killer album. 
Um, bonus, the, the third disc in here is a DVD, live performance, and it's just awesome. Highly, highly recommend. And, and I would recommend getting the remastered uh, version. I did listen to the original and the remastered, and obviously the remastered, the sound is a little louder, as with um, most things recorded back in that time when they're remastered now, they're bringing the, the volume up. Um, sounds better on your stereo, but definitely an album that, that influenced a lot of people and um, continues to get better with age. Um, I, I think as time goes on, more and more people are going to are going to rank it very highly. Yeah, and you know, and I tell people too if they if they've never heard this, if they're if they if you if you like the Beatles, look, and I'm not calling them the Beatles, but if you like the Beatles, it has that type of sound. If you like Oasis, it has that type of sound. Um, you can hear the Beatles influence in them and you can hear the way that Oasis was influenced by them. Right. Well, speaking of Oasis, um, perfect segue. I guess the first album I'm going to go to is Oasis's debut album, Definitely Maybe. Uh, released in 1994, it sold 15 million albums worldwide. I once heard Noel Gallagher say that between uh, Definitely Maybe and Morning Glory, they floated the uh, government in England for a couple of years with all the uh, money the government made off of that. Um, this was an album, when it came out, I wasn't uh, really aware of them. Chris and I both went to uh, Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, and we had a radio station called, was it U92? That's the name of it, wasn't it? I don't remember. I just, I just remember Rebel Radio. Did Rebel I do? Radio. Yeah, that's all yeah. I remember. Anyway, um, I had a job there on campus where I was driving around a lot, and I would hear Live Forever. And then really, I liked the song. didn't really think that much about it. And um, about six months later, What's the Story, Morning Glory came out. And, of course, you know that was one of the biggest, probably one of the top ten albums in the 90s. So when that album came out, I did go back and buy Definitely Maybe. And um, I think it's a, it's, it's a great album. It's, um, for the time, you know, some of the lyrics are kind of cheesy on some of the songs. I'll admit that. But the, the, the way that Noel, Gall Noel Gallagher is a great songwriter. And um, I look at that track listing and I only see two, two songs that I skip. And that's it, uh, which is pretty good for a debut album. But you're right. Noel Gallagher said, I want to be a, a, a cross between the Stone Roses and the Beatles. And so that the Stone Roses had a huge influence um, on that album. If you're if you're not familiar with it, uh, of course the big hit is "Live Forever" and uh, "Supersonic." But one of my favorite songs on there is a song called "Cigarettes and Alcohol," and it's just—it's my favorite track on there. It, it, it's a great song. And be honest with you, in the late '90s, Rod Stewart did an album called "When We Were the Young Boys," and I think that's the name of the album. It's a covers album of him mainly covering. Brit, Brit pop and other British artists uh, and he does a phenomenal version of Cigarettes and Alcohol if we ever do a top five cover songs that's going to be in my top five um, cover songs but the album was you know a lot bigger in England than it was America as the, as the story with Oasis's career you know they sell out soccer stadiums in Europe and I saw them at the Tabernacle in Atlanta 2,500 people um, you were telling me beforehand that this was at least in the running for your top five. Yeah, I mean, when I first started making a list, I, I did, I did think of that one. Um, like you said, you know, what's the story was a much bigger album, but this to me was a much better record. Um, and yeah, the the influence we talked about that the Stone Roses had on them, my, you know, my first selection I picked. You know, to, to show you how much of an influence, I. I there was when this 20th 20th anniversary of the Stone Roses album came out. I forgot to mention this. There was a quote on the album, and it was from Noel Gallagher, and it was just two words: "It's perfect." That was his review. So it, it just shows that you know how how much they kind of were influenced by the band. But you know, I'm not going to keep going back to the Stone Roses. They're great. But anyway, Noel, yeah, Noel would keep going back to the Stone Roses. But but yeah, I mean, this is a really really good record. Um, I think it's one of the better, definitely one of the better debuts, and it's it's pretty much solid beginning to end. Yeah, I know you say you mentioned you skip a couple, but it's a good record. Like I, said, I was actually going to point out, cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah, I, I love that track. Love that. Man, that's just sloppy rock and roll. Yeah, uh, that sounds good. All right, Chris. So what's your next album? All right, let me go to. And sorry if people hear me turning pages, if that's a little bit annoying, but I got to go back because I did take a couple of notes on this. 
I'm gonna just go. I'm gonna go with um, first out debut album REM, Murmur. Um, you know, if uh, if our buddy Shannon stumbles upon this uh, podcast, I think he'll be happy to hear that. Yes, he will. Um, I mean, God, what can I say about this album? I mean, it kind of it kind of was paved the way for alternative rock in in America, really. Uh, it was the beginnings. I mean, it was just on the forefront. Uh, this album was recorded in 1983. It was it was released on IRS Records, and it was um, it didn't really do it. It sold pretty well. I mean, it sold 200,000 copies. I mean, that's I think in today's time people would kill for those kind of sales, but it was still a disappointment by Island or by IRS. They they were still disappointed in the sales. So didn't sell very well, but it has in time over the time it. It's, it's always had the critical acclaim. Rolling Stone gave it five stars. And it, Rolling Stone ranked it number eight on a list of top 100 albums from the 80s. And, that, and that's at a time when a five-star review from Rolling Stone meant something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could make or break careers. Yeah. VH1 named it the 92nd greatest album of all time. Um, you know, this is one if you're... Uh, if you're more of a novice on REM, you, you're probably not really familiar with it. You know, you had people people didn't really start knowing of REM, I guess, until probably when Document came out. The one I love, Into the World. And then, of course, the when they became superstars without a time. But this is where it all started. And I know it's, it's uh, this is what, back in the days when nobody could understand Michael Stipe. And nobody knew what he was saying. He was spitting off, felt like, hundred words and, and you know every 10 seconds it's almost like his voice was just an instrument yeah yeah I mean it, it just just a great great record I mean be, beginning it kind of like we're talking about with these I mean and yeah I mean it, it's to me it's there's not really skippable tracks on this one I go the whole thing man it just opening up radio free Europe I mean that's kind of defining song by them um Great tracks. I'm, I'm just looking at the track listing on here. Talk about the passion. Shaking through. And then, of course, one I've always been a big fan of, Catapult. Hugely, hugely underrated song by them. Anyway, I know you're familiar with this album. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I've seen R.E.M. twice. Matter of fact, you and I saw them on their final tour um, at Lakewood in Atlanta. Very, very, very good live band. Um, you'll find through this podcast, my problem with this CD is not so much in the music, it's the production. Um, I have no idea what, sit, what he's saying in like Sitting Still. Um, that's why I said, you know, it's like his, his voice is, a, um, is another instrument. But if you go back and look at people, uh, for instance, one of my favorite bands is uh, the Black Crows. Their drummer, uh, Steve Gorman, I mean, he puts this in the same category as the Beatles. Um, there's a lot of people that this album uh, influenced going forward, and it was the initial thing to really start building the underground indie movement. I do like our REM. You know, they're probably in one of my top 20 favorite bands. Be honest with you, I get on board with them at Life's Rich Pageant. Um, it's my favorite album by them. I, that, that's that's the one I kind of you know as far back as I like to go to. Reckoning has a couple of songs on it I really like. You know, the songs on Murmur to me when you hear them live. They sound great. Um, I would have to say that's probably my main thing is is the production and the the muddied up vocals of, of Stipe. But there's no denying that you know anybody that came out in indie or alternative rock after 1982, they're going to point to that. It's you know in Radio Free Europe, like you said, is kind of like a turning point of where. Correct me if I'm wrong. Kind of almost the CBGB movement type music takes a turn going towards the trying to get towards the mainstream obviously it would take them another four albums before they they blew up but anybody that's anybody uh from the 80s is going to go back to that album yeah i mean this was this was just when they were i mean they were a college band at this time i mean it was it was back when you know indie rock i mean that was this was what was played on college radio this album um all their early releases well they're the beatles of indie rock yeah i mean it's just it's you know, you talk about the production. One thing too that I to point out is the guys who produced this album. They are. They also. Wait, no, I got that wrong. Never mind. I was about to say. A, about to. I almost misspoke on that one. 
anyway, great album. Um, I'm with you. Leicester's Pageant's my favorite one, but I love pretty much everything except for those like three or four albums after New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Um, Which is a great album. Yeah, we'll 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 uh, we'll get to that one at some point on a podcast. That's a criminally underrated album, but we're not here to talk about Hi-Fi. If you like REM, if you just happen to know the hits, but you've never really given this one a chance, check it out. It's great. Great album. All right, I told you I had a curveball for you, so I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I'm ready. Um, a lot of you may not be familiar with this band, but if you follow the music, um, especially if you grew up in the area that we did, is the debut album from Brother Kane. Okay. Um, um, I grew up listening to Rock 103 yeah. in Memphis, and they played this album um, a lot. Got no shame, I remember. Got, got no shame. And the, the thing that I think is interesting about this album is nobody's going to confuse them with being a glam band. Nobody's going to confuse them with being a strictly southern rock band. They definitely had influence. As their career went on, they got further and further away from that. Um, I saw them open up for Van Halen actually here in Memphis on the Balance Tour. And it's just a solid album that that you can just put in and have on in the background and really enjoy. And and you and I both appreciate Damon Johnson. um, who's great player. Player, lead singer. He, uh, after... Brother Kane broke up. He played with Alice Cooper for eight or, years, eight years. or nine years. Yeah. And then, uh, now if I have this wrong, correct me, he transitioned into Thin Lizzy, which eventually turned into a band called Black Star Riders. Yeah, he said that Thin Lizzy is his all-time favorite band. And uh, he had a chance to get with, uh, when Gorham you know, put the band back together, people don't know Gorham is one of the lead guitarists of Thin Lizzy. He got Damon Johnson to fill the other role, and they had Gorham and... Um, Denny was playing drums, original, you know, well, you know, the original, but he was Thin Lizzy drummer. And then they, at once it was just Gorham in the band, you know, they only had one original, and they did the right thing, Bobby Blotzer, anyone? Um, but they did the right thing. They went ahead and just changed the name of the band and went Black Star Riders. So, but it's still basically, I mean, if you were to see them live, you're probably going to hear half Thin Lizzy songs. Right. Anyway, if you haven't heard of Brother Kane, the, 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 they had three fairly successful singles got no shame that don't satisfy me and hard act to follow they also have a ballad on there called the road that if this would have come out in 87 or 88 um when i said brother kane you probably wouldn't be saying to yourself who is that um it's a great ballad um very very solid playing um like i said it's when it came out i listened to it a lot that's one of the things one of the criteria i had you know how much have i listened to these albums and that is one that I, I listen to a lot. But more importantly, um, if you are a fan of this album and Damon John, uh, sorry Damon Johnson, you need to listen to Black Star Riders, particularly their second album. And I'll even throw in he had an EP come out last year called Echo, and I think it's only four songs, um, but it was one of my top albums. Like not really, I guess not an album, top new music mm-hmm. of the year. Um, anyway, great band. Um, Came along at the wrong time. I'm going to have to revisit it. I own it. I haven't heard it in years. Um, you're making me want to put it on and check it out again. Because it's, 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 been, it's been a long time. Um, but yeah, he's like, I said, like we said, Damon Johnson's a great player, a great voice. Um, he's a and fellow Southern boy too, right? Alabama. Birmingham. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Think you he, may have already said that. I think, he, I think he splits time between Birmingham and Nashville. I think like every... Because everybody's in Nashville. Yeah, right. I mean, the L.A. of the South, right? Anyway, so if you get a chance, um, it's on Spotify, iTunes, Amazon. Um, Check it out. Check out those four songs I named. If they don't grab you, then the rest of the album's not. What you got up next for us, Chris? All right. I'm going to go with um, the first, the debut album by Uncle Tupelo, No Depression. You probably had an idea this one might show up. I have, yeah. Um... This one, let's just, here's, here's how I'll state the importance of this album for, you know, alternative country, of course, what became known as alt country. Again, name of the album is No Depression. Well, the, the magazine website, periodical, whatever you want to call it, on alt country is called No Depression. And it's a movement. I mean, it's- yes, I mean, it's not, that's not a coincidence. It was named after Uncle Tupelo. Um, you know, I know we've had this conversation before. I view Uncle Tupelo as 
Yeah, they're they're what Nirvana is to grunge. That's what they are to alt country. It's a defining album. Um, maybe more so than just about it. Probably more so than any album I have in my list as far as what being as the importance of a, a particular sound. Um, you know, for people that aren't real familiar with Uncle Tupelo, you're probably familiar with two bands that came from Uncle Tupelo. Uncle Tupelo was a band that had co-vocalist. One of them was Jay Farrar, and he was the he was the vocal one of co-vocalist guitarist, and he went on to form Sunvolt. You know, they they still record. It's not the same band that he originally came out with, but they still record, still making great music. As a matter of fact, they have a new album coming out next Friday, I believe. And I'm, I'm seeing them in three weeks. I'm looking forward to it. Um, Jay Farrar is still making great, great music. He, um, I don't think he gets, I don't think he, he gets the respect that he deserves, as, at least as far as Sunvolt goes, because they had that one album, Trace, that came out, which had, you know, had Drown on it, which was pretty, pretty popular radio hit. You know, if you, if you, Look up Sunvolt. If you can't remember, you look up Sunvolt and play Drown, and you'll remember them. Now, the other the other member, co-vocalist, co-vocalist bassist, is Jeff Tweedy, who fronts Wilco. Pretty much everybody will know that band, because they're the big one. Um, also, great band, put out some great records. I'm not a fan of what Jeff Tweedy's doing lately. Um, I really believe he's his experimentation is... is uh, it's hurting the music. I, a, I, I don't like it. It's a good thing they own their own record label. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's not. I mean, but the first the first few albums were great. But anyway, this is about Uncle Tupelo. Um, this album just, I mean, it was recorded in 1990, way ahead of its time. Recorded, I, I, it's recorded on just a low budget, 3,500. I mean, it it sold. I it sold about 15,000 copies, which. Even though that sounds really, really low, that was a pretty big number for an independent release. And because of that success, it led them to, you know, it led them to get, led them to get into a record deal with, um, who was it there? I can't even think of the record. Columbia. Yeah, they went, it, led to, it led to them getting signed by Columbia. Um, produced by uh, a couple of guys, Sean Slade and... Paul Coldery, I hope I'm getting his name right. Anyway, these guys went on to produce the uh, another, well, another very famous debut record, which is uh, Radiohead's first. But anyway, I know you're familiar with these guys. Um, it's I, I keep talking about like Spin and Rolling Stone and all, but Spin did list it as one of the top 90 records of the 90s. Um, just a highly influential uh, Rolling Stone. They uh, initially they did not write a review for this album. But they later did write the, do an article on them as one of the up and comers, one of the the artists to look out for, rising stars, that, along with the Black Crows. So, good, good album. Um, it, what are your a, thoughts? It's an album that has a little bit of everything. Uh, you have some definite old school country, um, almost folk music, and then you have some punk um, and some straight up rock. And I, I, it's another one I would encourage you if you get it, get the remastered. Um, version like Chris said uh, Sunvolt and Wilco both spun out of that Sunvolt and Wilco their debut albums both almost made my cut um, that's how that's how much I respect them yeah and the first Wilco album was actually kind of similar to Uncle Tupelo the, the, I mean first Sunvolt could have been an Uncle Tupelo right. record but Wilco they didn't they weren't too experimental it was still all country not to get one. off track too much but have you ever seen a band change more from one album from AM to the last album called Schmilko. No, no, and they're it's, not it's, even it's, the it's, same it's band. It's not a good change, but no, this, but this, this album what you're talking about, you, you made you made a good point when you're talking about how there's elements of, you know, rock, country, folk, punk. Punk's important on this one. Um, you could almost say some of the songs are country, uh, punk. Yeah, they they really were they were hugely inspired by by punk and, and and we're not talking sex pistols type punk guys i mean we're talking you know bands like the replacements Minute the Minutemen, um a lot of that you know the sst stuff that was happening you know out of minneapolis that movement uh bands like husker du and all that they were so they really kind of it's kind of like that a punkish type sound with a lot of acoustic and it's 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 great right it's a great record though it's good back porch music yeah, it's a good one to go. Yeah, go sit on the porch, crank it, drink a few beers. 
very good album. I encourage you to um, listen to it if you have not. My next um, album, uh, this is going to come as no shock to anybody that knows me, is The Black Crows, Shake Your Moneymaker. Uh, the Black Crows are my favorite band of all time. And um, while this is a great debut album, uh, if I were ranking The Black Crows albums, it would come in fourth or fifth, depending on the day. One of the reasons I picked it was you have to look at when this album came out. It came out in 1990. Um, Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood is on the charts. Um, Nirvana, Bleach may have come out, but Nevermind has not come out at this point. No. Um, we're in what I like to call the third wave of the glam music, the tricksters, the firehouses, you know, Pretty Boy Floyds. Um, that whole genre is being, it's just too saturated. And you have a band come out from Atlanta, Georgia, that in any comparison you, you read about, they're crossed between the Stones and the Faces, at least in this first album. Faces for sure. The album sold five million copies, which um, back then, you know, even though record sales were much much higher than they are now, five million was was a lot of records, um, and they they were signed to Deaf American, which is Rick, Rubens, right? Rick Rubin. Yeah. At the time, these are the other people they had signed: Slayer, Danzig, Andrew Dice Clay, The Ghetto Boys, and Sir Mix a Lot. So they pretty much had their bases covered. Uh, the base, all that's really missing is a hardcore country band. Um, but one of the th reasons I think this album, it's, a, it's so odd that it was successful, you could not categorize them at the time. There was nobody else putting out music like this that wasn't aimed at either being very heavy or glam. And one of the problems they had when, on their first tour uh, not on their first tour because they opened for ZZ Top and that's a very famous story of Chris Robinson opening his mouth up about corporate sponsorship of rock and roll and the tour sponsored by Miller Lite. They don't have a job. They're kicked off the tour. But they were packaged. Uh, they went through Europe opening up for Metallica. I bet that went over well. Right. And and I um, Steve Gorman has his own radio show uh, on Fox Sports and he talks about how he's still friends with the guys in Metallica uh, to this day. He's like, Lars and I get along great but Man, we, we didn't have any business being there. But obviously there were four big singles. The top two are She Talks to Angels, Hard to Handle. Uh, the other ones are Jealous Again and Twice as Hard. If I never hear She Talks to Angels or Hard to Handle again, I'll be okay with that. Um, if you if you want to hear a good version of She Talks to Angels, they recently did an album called Crowology where they re-recorded about 20 songs on acoustic uh, instruments, everything from mandolins and violins, and Luther Dickinson of the North Mississippi All-Stars tears She Talks to Angels up. Um, anyway, it's it's a good album. Some people try to classify it as Southern Rock. I think had they been from Oklahoma City, they wouldn't be referred to as Southern Rock, but it seems like anybody that comes from south of the Mason-Dixon line, you'll have people say that R.E.M. is Southern, you know, Southern Rock. Um, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a good album. Uh, all the way through. Um, if you want to get away from those four singles, uh, I suggest Stare It Cold and Could I've Been So Blind. And uh, like I said, uh, they're my favorite band. Uh, I was going to have to have an album of theirs on here. Uh, Chris, you were listening to music at that time. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, and I had this. I remember I, I, did, I got the cassette when I was a kid. Um, as a matter of fact, I still remember there was even an old sticker in it of the two crows. Right. Two black crows. Um yeah, I mean, I like it a lot. And, and twice as hard. I mean, yeah, I guess it was a. I didn't really. I guess I don't really even realize that was a single. Yeah. But that's a great song. Um, and there was a ballad on there that was real. Is that seeing things? That one. I love that song. Very slow st song builds towards. Great, the end. great song. Yeah, and I mean, it's funny. You, you mean make inter interesting points about how there was. You know, I guess it, this kind of success may have been a little bit cards may have been a little bit stacked against them when you think about it, but, but they were competing against, you know, Motley Crue and Skid Row and Poison and all that. And they're just, uh, you know, I just think of them as, you, you say, thought of as Southern Rock. They're just, uh, especially that first album, you know, they got a little bit more experimental. And, more jam band. Yeah, they could, they, yeah, exactly. They become more of a jam band. But that first album was just straight ahead rock and roll. And, you know, you say in The Stones and The Faces, well, it doesn't get much more. Right. You know, rock and roll and that. And, you know, 
Again, we're going to talk a lot about a lot of different music. Hope we turn you on to some things. If you've never listened to The Faces, check them, check them out. Great, great band. It's Rod Stewart's band before. Right. Um, but Most people think Stay With Me is a Rod Stewart song. That's a Faces song. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's I like the album. I like it. I'm not as versed in I think I own about four or five Crow albums, but and Crowology is that may be my favorite. Right. I love that. But yeah, it's good. It's good. Solid album, solid album. All right, Chris, what's your next one? All right. Um I'm gonna go with one that a lot of people aren't real familiar with this one. They're uh they may have heard the name, but haven't probably have never even heard a song. Um, the band is television. And the album is Marquee Moon. And this album came out in 77. Um, definitely a, uh, it was a different sound. There wasn't anybody that sounded like that. And I honestly, I don't think anybody sounds like that now. But um, it's, I was late to the party on this one myself. I had uh, heard of them, but I was reading a book called Please Kill Me. And Please Kill Me is about the, the New York punk scene, which a lot of a lot of time has been on, on television, you know, the Ramones, New York Dolls, Blondie, but television it, it's defined as punk, but it certainly doesn't sound like a punk record. Uh, so I think a lot of people view it, and maybe they haven't heard of it, and they know it's a punk record, and they maybe they think they're going to hear the Sex Pistols. You're not. Um, Original sound, and this is one that it when it came out, it got really good critical acclaim in both the US and the UK, but it sold very poorly in uh, in the states. I, I got that it sold less than eighty thousand, never charted Billboard, but it did sell really well in the UK. It charted in the top thirty and had success over there, but it just didn't do anything here. The um, thing that kind of stands out is the the, the, the musicianship, particularly the guitar playing. Uh, Tom Verlaine, he was the uh, singer, guitarist, and Richard Lloyd, he also played guitar in the band. And the two of them just had a unique sound that turned out to be a very, very influential sound. Um, the Edge, has a few too, has cited him as a major influence. Uh, Michael Stipe, REM, cites television as a very big influence. Um, this kind of sounds like one of those picks to pick television, Marquee Moon, like you're trying to be, oh, I want to be different, or I want to fit in with everybody. and be. It's not that. I promise you. It's a. It's just a really, really good record. Um, and, you know, since since that time, like I said, it just grow, the legacy of the album grows and grows. If you look it up, you'll see all the different five-star reviews they get, just about every publication, five-star. Rolling Stone, five-star. Uh, Spin, 10 out of 10. Entertainment Weekly, they, they called it, you know, a masterpiece of 1970s New York, the, the New York punk scene. Um, I know you've just kind of known I was going to go to this. You've always heard of it, just like I had always heard of it. You you just started listening to it. What are your thoughts? It's a great example of don't judge something by, not necessarily the album cover, but the association. Um, and what I mean by that is, Obviously, you read a lot of musicians, um, they, they go back to this album. Um, actually, from a variety of styles uh, of, of music. And I'll be honest with you, when, when I think of television before the past couple of weeks, I thought they were a cross between the Ramones and the Talking Heads. I think most people probably would. And that is not something that I would really want to... Now, I love the Talking Heads, um, think they're good the, the Ramones I know you're a fan of them uh, just not something that that does it for me so uh, Chris and I have actually uh, along with another friend of ours um, have had a group text going for a couple of months now we'll just randomly talk about music and um, I'd asked everybody to list their top five albums of all time and Marky Moon was one that you listed so obviously I knew that this was coming up it's one of your top five all time Anyway, I'll tell you that I've been pleasantly surprised. And um, one of the, the things that, that gets me about that New York scene at the time is I don't particularly think a lot of the guitar playing was that great. You can't say, it wasn't. You can't say that for this album. And the opening song, is it called I See No Evil or See No Evil? See No Evil. 
that is a great song. How that wasn't a hit, um, I don't know. The the I've listened to it all the way through about three times uh, this past week. I listened to it this morning driving up, and it, it's definitely something that I'm gonna gonna throw in the rotation to uh, t- to listen to more. And and if you you hear it, you can kind of, you can hear how it could influence people from the punk scene, the new wave, um, and indie. It's it's a good album, and now you've told me that the rest of their stuff is goes they go downhill. Well, you know, this I, one. well the 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 second album of theirs is actually pretty good. It's definitely worth owning. Um, I like it. The third one, which didn't get released until I think around ninety, it's terrible. I'd stay away from that one, but you know, don't be afraid to try out the second. I can't even think of the name of it. I want to say it's Adventure. Or, but it, it's really good. Um, it doesn't measure up to Marky Moon, though. Um, you mentioned See No Evil. Great song. Venus. Great, great song. Prove It. It's great. But then the, the song Marky Moon is one that's just... That's a long song. Yeah, right? and it's a kind of a, a cult you know cult status song. Yeah, it's close to 10 minutes long. Um, Which for a band at that time playing that style of music with anything past four minutes was almost like... Grateful Dead playing Dark Star. Yeah, you know, and I read you. You sent a, you, you found out that I'm so into this album. And you sent me a really cool article about them, and uh, I was reading through that, and they were talking about how they were getting. And they didn't really talk about this in the book. Please kill me, but they were talking about how they turned down major record deal offers as early as '74, but they just didn't feel they were ready, and so, and they were known to just be relentlessly practicing. And I think that's part of the reason why Richard Hell. A lot of people know that name in punk. He quit and did his own thing. You know, had a real popular song, Blatant Generation. Um, I think that's part of why he bailed. He got tired of it. He got tired of the, he, he was he was a slacker guy. But they were real musicians. And, um, but yeah, they, they fought off signing to a label. They finally went, finally signed with Electra. And the reason why they went with Electra is because the other labels were not caving into Verlaine's demand of producing it. And apparently, the, the only way that uh, Electra would actually let him produce, but they had to have a uh, an accomplished engineer on the album, which brought in Andy Johns, which, big, big name in music, but at the time, kind of an unknown, that he was the brother of Glenn Johns. Glenn Johns had worked with Zeppelin and many, many, many bands. And he was just, he was an unknown at the time, but they, they knew his talents were there, but they wanted somebody a little bit more inexperienced, a little bit more green to where I think he could, Verlaine could call the shots because I think he was a bit of a control freak. Album is very good. Like I said, I'm I'm kind of kicking myself that uh, I judged it without um, listening to it. And uh, maybe that's a lesson I can go forward with and and not make that mistake um, with. Um, Well, we're down to our, our final, my final two. I think you have one more. I do. I think these final two, you and I can, um, we probably don't even need notes. Um, Van Halen, Van Halen. Made my list um, as one, and I and we will we'll spend we'll run through this at the end and just you know spend about five minutes talking about bands that could have made this list. Van Halen was one that I had a I didn't I never scratched off my list. I had a little check mark beside it because it was worthy of mentioning. Well, it was released in 1978. They're from Pasadena, California. Um, very legendary for throwing backyard parties in the 70s in um, suburban Los Angeles. And uh, that's kind of how their cult following started. Uh, it sold 10 million albums. Ted Templeman produced it. He would go on to produce, I think... Most of them, Almost right? all of the classic ones. Um, and... Um, you know, there's a lot of rumors and innuendo about Gene Simmons. What, what, how much of a role he played in this? I've, I've heard that that, that Eddie gave Gene um, a demo. Gene turned it over to someone. I think at Warner Brothers. I think it's who put their albums out. Um, so the album comes out. They go on tour with Journey and Montrose. Uh, Montrose is another band most people probably haven't heard of, but hugely influential as far as guitar playing. Um, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably know that You Really Got Me is a cover of a kink song. Uh, a lot of people, though, I think, think it's a Van Halen song. It's played on classic rock every three or four hours, depending on the station. 
um, you listen to. And one of the notes I made here, and you, you, can, you can give me your opinion on this, Chris. Eruption is one minute and 42 seconds long. Has there been a more influential one minute and 42 seconds in modern music? Probably not. I mean, Eddie, Eddie just revolutionized the guitar. I mean, when you talk players, you've got Hendrix, you've got Eddie. I don't think you need anybody else. I from, mean, there's from, great players, but those guys just... That's one and one A. They, they, they just changed guitar playing forever, both of them. And Eddie, it, he can never get enough credit for what he did. I mean, people... The finger tapping, yeah, I mean, you can even see some stuff earlier, like in the 70s of Brian May of Queen finger tapping, but it was one finger, it was just here and there. But Eddie comes in there, full out of soth on that fretboard with both, all all eight fingers flying on that thing. He's a mad scientist. Yeah. And, and one of the things that sticks out to me about this album, like I said, when I, you'll hear me over the course of these podcasts, one of the things I'm very critical of is production value. I have a hard time getting past poor production value. Metallica and Justice for All is, a, is an example of that. This album, you put it in the stereo, and it sounds like it's re, it could be recorded today. Um, the guitars just have a great crunch. Um, the MVP of the album, other than Eddie's playing, is the backing vocals of Michael Anthony. Uh, maybe the greatest backing vocalist in rock and roll history. He's almost a fifth, in, a fifth instrument. Uh, and if you go see him live now, Wolfgang, heck of a... Heck of a bass player, uh, especially to be 16 years old when he went on tour with his dad. But the vocals, man, they're not there. I know you and I saw them yeah. in, in Nashville. And um, this album, it, it, it has some punk, punk leanings. Not straight up punk, but punk leanings. Um, my favorite song on the album to hear live is Ain't Talking About Love. Um, they play it live. It's Even when we saw them, it was like they were 20 years old. It's very... Uh, very aggressive, and um, it's a good album. I, I would say this, and you'll probably get mad at me. I cannot stand the song Ice Cream Man. Favorite one on there. And see, folks, that's why we do the podcast. Favorite I mean, one. I, I, I can't literally cannot stand that song. God, I love it. And it's just basic 12-bar blues, and then Eddie just rips, which right. is, I love, I love the song. I mean, it. you kind of saw, actually, when you listen to that song, you can kind of hear that cheesy broth that's going to come in later years the you know just deal. a gigolo and all that you can kind of hear that the, the early stages of that in that song but nah I mean solid 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 record revolutionary um, you know I mean it is it is the Van Halen record to own it is and um, we're going to go to your last one I've got a good feeling that your last one and my last one's the same thing how can it not be Appetite for Destruction, exactly. folks? Um, I mean, look, it, Guns N' Roses' Appetite of Destruction, I don't know where it ranks in my top albums, but when you're, when you're talking about debut albums, it's, it's insane. You know, because and there's, been, there's been bands like you know, Nirvana that put out Nevermind and all that, but you know, some people don't know that wasn't their first right. album. Um, and it seems like one thing that I struggled with when I was making my list is almost all of my favorite bands, their debut was not their best. And this was one where it was. It was just dirty, raunchy, L.A. street metal, hard rock, whatever you want to call it. Um, at a time at a time when things were really getting glammed up. Yeah, and I think, uh, I think one of the... You know, you have, everybody knows Slash, everybody knows Axel, but two really important ingredients in that album is, gotta be, you know, Izzy Stradlin, because he wrote the songs and all, but I think a lot of times Duff doesn't get enough credit, because he brought the, I think he brought the edge to the band. I mean, this guy was, I just recently finished reading a book about the Seattle music scene. People don't realize he was a player in Seattle, and he was in a really popular Seattle band right before grunge kind of started to break. He was a punk guy. He always played in punk bands, and I think he brought that to the band. Paradise City was written about them driving back from Seattle. Did not, I don't know if I knew that one. No, like when they first, they may not have officially had the name Guns N' Roses yet. It's when they yeah. did that tour that yeah. Duff took them on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I have some some facts here. Uh, Mike Clink uh, was the producer of this album. Um, there was somebody else that was this close to doing it, uh, but he was busy with another album at the time called Hysteria. Mutt Lane. Oh yeah, I did. I did read that. They, they wanted him. He was too expensive. He was tied up with uh, Def Leppard. And uh, I heard this on our friend Eddie Trunk's uh, podcast the other day. Paul Stanley was approached to produce this album. Now, if you think in 1986, I believe when the album was recorded, Paul Stanley was putting out some terrible music. How different would their career have been if, you know, uh, Appetite for Destruction sounded like Crazy, Crazy Nights? Well, yeah, and they said, what I read too, is they said they ultimately went with Mike Clink because they said that was the first time that he rec- anybody had recorded them the way they wanted to sound. Right. And that's why they chose him. He gave them the sound that they were looking for. And for the time, for an uns- a, a band, their debut album, they had a $370,000 recording budget, which I think probably went up um, Izzy's nose and, and Slash's veins. Um, I read an, a book, and I, I may have the title. It was either called The Road to Appetite or it was actually called Appetite for Destruction. Uh, was The bulk of the album is about... Um, the bulk of the book is about this album. The scary thing about this album is these are true stories. These songs are true stories. And they recorded a lot of music. Let me tell you this, Chris. See if you thought how this would change your opinion on the album. While they, when they recorded this, they also demoed You Could Be Mine, Don't Cry, and November Rain. Yeah, I, I read that too. They were, I mean, they were... They were in talks of making the album, and I actually read where they said November. The reason why they did not, did not put November Rain on because they already had Sweet Child on, which it was they they didn't want two ballads. Which I've always had a kind of a hard time accepting Sweet Child of Mine as a ballad anyway. I don't consider. It. I just consider it lyrically it is, mid-tempo. but but yeah, I mean lyrically it's a ballad, but it doesn't sound like one. Yeah, and you know you got to think they were like the perfect stew. Um, Izzy wanted to be the Stone, Slash wanted to be Aerosmith. Duff wanted to be the New York Dolls, and Axel wanted to be Queen. And you can hear a little bit of that. You know, there's a tug of war, I think, with the influences. No matter who you talk to about this album that had anything to do with it, they will all point to Izzy Stradlin as being the glue that kind of brought everything together. And obviously, after he, you know, he recorded both of the Illusion albums, but was gone by the time they toured. Um, Guy doesn't get enough credit. Uh, I think it's because he walked away. I mean, he walked away because he got sober, and you know, those guys were they were cranked up till eleven uh, with the drugs. But I don't see how there's a better debut album, um, especially given uh, it was kind of against the grain when it came out. I mean, that's they're not poison. No, they're not. I mean, they're looped into with that, and you know, and in some ways, I think. I mean. They, they, especially guys like Slash and Duff, they want to get as far away from Poison as they can. But look, there's a reason why they were associated. I mean, there's similarities more than they like to admit, but it, it they do stand alone with their own sound. Great album. Uh, if you don't have it, I, I don't know how you can call yourself a music fan. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody listening to this probably owns that one. Um, so, but yeah, and we're we're running a little bit long here. Uh, we got about. Four minutes or so, or we can maybe go a little bit longer. Um, I was going to talk about a few albums that did not make my cut. I know Chris has a few as well. As we talked earlier, um, the debut album from Sunvolt and Wilco, both of those albums were are very good. Um, if you looked at the alt country music, uh, most people, everybody's going to say that Uncle Tupelo No Depression is the defining album of the movement. But a lot of people are going to say number two was Sunvolt Trace. And um, that's a solid, solid album. Wilco, uh, their first album, AM, really was just an extension of Uncle Tupelo, I feel like. Uh, with a little, some of the lyrics were a little bit lighthearted, lightheartedly like uh, Casino Queen and, you know, I Must Be High and stuff like that. But great album. And then an album that um, really kind of forgotten about because normally when I listen to this band I listen to their greatest hits album but uh, there's actually two bands like this Boston's first album I was reading it's the only debut album in which all songs on it are play, still played on the radio as singles 
and then the original Leonard Skinner album. That Boston one's a good pick. I didn't even think of that. As crazy as that sounds, I didn't even think about that. Right. What were some of yours that, that you just missed out on? Well, you know, I I thought um, I think you got I, I think you got to at least consider Black Sabbath, the 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 first one. I mean, it's what can well, you it's, say? It's, it invented it, never mind it, it invented heavy metal, right. and it's it still holds up to this day. It's just dark. It's gloomy. I mean, even that, that album cover so creepy. It, it's it fits the music then and. The song Black Sabbath scares me. Oh, it, 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 yeah, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a creepy song. It's, a, it's so, so good. Um, definitely not overrated. Let's just say that. Important, important album. And I think a lot of these we've named, they're not just good, but they are important. You know, where we talk about, you know, starting off with the Stone Roses, what they did. You talk about television, what they did. You know, Oasis kind of Oasis carrying that flag. You know, Guns N' Roses, Van Halen, you know, Uncle Tupelo. They're really important. And that Sabbath, there may not. I mean, it's one of the most important bands of all time. Uh, so that was in there. I have. Um, I know you don't really like the album that much. I know you're a fan of the band, but Led Zeppelin one, important record, great record for me. I mean, it's it's a it's a blues record. And I think it was recorded in like two or three days. Something like that. I'm not I, sure I, on it that. Was, it was, man, it was put together quick. Matter of fact, one thing when they recorded it, weren't they going to go with the name the New York Birds? And uh, somebody told them they would go over like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, that is right. That is right. Yeah, yeah. I remember that story. Um, I also had Johnny Thunder's So Alone. You know, we mentioned, um, for those of you that don't know, we mentioned, you know, he had mentioned, um, he had mentioned that. Guns N' Roses and Duff McKagan saying he wanted to be like the New York Dolls. Johnny Thunders was the guitarist of the New York Dolls. Like television, it was the book, Please Kill Me. I'm giving them a lot of props. It's a great book that you should check out if you're interested in that scene. But uh, I didn't become really a fan of his familiar until I read that book. And Johnny Thunders was just, it's a great, great album. It was the debut album by him it was supposedly it was just it was I think complicated recording it because he was such a junkie I mean as bad as they come which was frequent in that scene at the time yeah but he and he was just well I mean this will tell you how bad it, it how much of a junkie he was one of the co-stars on it was Phil and of Thin Lizzy who overdosed on heroin as well so um but it's a it's a very it's it's not really I don't it's hard to even look at it as a punk record it's more of a it almost kind of has that stonesy just dirty rock and roll and if you're if you're a fan of Guns N' Roses I believe it's on the Spaghetti Incident uh, you can't throw your arms around a memory can't put your arms around can't a memory can't put your arms yeah. around a memory and you know at the beginning Duff yells out this is for you Johnny and uh, Chris and I were lucky enough to see Guns N' Roses um, this summer in New Orleans at the Superdome and I think he played one verse of it and then yeah, went, in, he did. went into Attitude maybe or I don't remember what song he played but I do remember him teasing yeah. that uh, yeah but that's it's a, it's a really 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 good album a lot of people don't know of that one um, they know the name New York Dolls but they don't know who Johnny Thunders is and he's somebody worth you know worth your time um, I, think, I mean I put I, I put on here the Smiths debut record you know, that's that one is a really good album, great first album, and one that a couple of two more that I had. The first Jesus and Mary Chain album, Psycho Candy, very, very noisy. Another one that's just a very influential and very one that has a ton of critical acclaim. And then my last one is probably my oddball surprise one, Crowded House. Um, people remember Don't Dream It's Over, something so strong. It takes me back to being a kid riding in the car playing that cassette my mom, while my mom was driving. Nothing she, wrong with that. She would always let me play that one. She liked it too. And I've never stopped loving that album since I was a little kid that bought it from the record store and I still love it. It's better than the Footloose soundtrack. It is. Chris, this wasn't very hard, was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, this is basically a telephone conversation that Chris and I have. Um, we hope you liked the podcast. Uh, I want to let you know that we do have a Facebook page. Uh, Digital Kill the Radio Star. Um, if you go to SoundCloud, uh, subscribe to us. Uh, initially, we're probably going to put one out every two weeks or so, uh, and then at, see how things progress after that. 
Um, and also, if there's show ideas that you want us to uh, do, just put them in the comments section on Facebook. And uh, I think that's going to do it, and we'll see you on the next podcast.